Welcome everybody to the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. My name is Alessandro Duino and I'm the Principal Research Fellow at MEI. Tonight, I'm very glad to have with us a soldier and a scholar, General David Patreus. General, welcome. Great to be with you, Alex. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, prior to start, uh, just a couple of house rules. We will discuss for 20-30 minutes, then we will open the floor to the question from our audience. Feel free to send your question before, if you have a burning one, just use the Zoom chat function to MEI event. General David Patreus served over 37 years in the US military, culminating his career with six consecutive commands, five in combat zone, including Iraq, Afghanistan, and the U.S. Central Command. He also served as a director of the CIA. Now, General Patreus is partner and chairman of the KKR Global Institute, which he established in 2013. He graduated with distinction from the U.S. Military Academy and is the only person in the U.S. Army history to be the top graduate of both demanding U.S. Army Ranger School and the U.S. Army Command at the General Staff College. He also earned his PhD from Princeton University. General Prateus taught international relations and economics at the U.S. Military Academy. Also, he was visiting professor and senior fellow in several universities, including Harvard and Yale. And currently, he is co-chairman of the Global Advisory Council of the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars. Is also senior vice president at the Royal United Service Institute in the United Kingdom. General Patreus has earned numerous honors, award, and decoration, including four Defense Distinguished Service Medal, the Bronze Star Medal for Valor, two NATO Meritorious Service Medal. In addition, General Patreus has been decorated by 13 foreign countries, and I do believe, General, that includes also Croce d'Oro Merito from the Carabinieri when you were based in Afghanistan. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about Afghanistan, we can start with the first question, and is uh, what did the U.S. got wrong in Afghanistan, and what does it mean for nation building? The floor is yours, General. Well, again, thanks very much, Alex. It really is a pleasure to be with you, to be with uh, MEI. And um, anytime one can do something with the National University of Singapore, it's a really great honor. Uh, and of course, you've asked a question that a lot of us have been doing a lot of thinking about recently, needless to say, as we saw the, what can only, I think, be described as uh, a disastrous, uh, heartbreaking, uh, tragic outcome in Afghanistan. Um, so I have been thinking about this uh, a fair amount, and I've even written some stuff down that I will uh, use to help me as I answer that question. Um, in a general sense, I think that what we got wrong in Afghanistan was that we very early on took our eye off Afghanistan. Uh, indeed, from the very beginning, uh, we sought to maintain what proved to be too light a footprint. Uh, we failed to establish a unified and coherent chain of command from the very outset. If you read a great book by Sean Miller, Not a Good Day to Die, that comes through very, very clearly about how confusing the command relationships were uh, for operation, the operation uh, that was conducted in early 2002 to try to get Osama bin Laden and the Al Qaeda elements that were in Bora Bora, uh, which escaped and, of course, got across the 
we failed to exploit early opportunities uh, to really build the kind of robust, if you want to call it nation building. And let me just, as an aside, offer right here that nation building has been become a bit of an intellectual pinata uh, of late. Uh, everyone bashing it um, and saying that you know, of course, never, of course, we shouldn't have done nation building. Well, perhaps au contraire. I mean, if you don't do nation building, if you don't help a country, the host nation, actually establish host nation security forces and host nation institutions, particularly the critical ones, um, how in the world do you ever hand off tasks that you're performing for that country, which we've taken over, of course, we, you know, we get toppled the Taliban, uh, toppled all the institutions, everyone fled, and needless to say, we owned it uh, together with a great coalition, and that coalition grew over time. So obviously you have to help them build those nation security forces of all types, by the way, not just army, uh, but also police, border police, customs, all of this actually has to be established. Uh, there has to be instituted uh, all the way from the central government uh, in Kabul to the provinces. But, but needless to say, it should be uh, undertaken with an eye to establishing what is appropriate for that country. And all of these comments that we tried to remake Afghanistan like ourselves, or we tried to build an army that looked like ours, or we tried to turn Afghanistan into Switzerland in 10 or 20 years or less, just don't understand, I don't think, how it was that we actually went about this. And I'll be happy to take questions about some specifics of that. And I will also note, though, that there were mistakes made in a number of different areas in this particular area. Uh, in, in specific areas of nation building, including uh, the equipment that we provided to the Afghan National Security Forces. Uh, but, but so the big idea here is to understand that we never even got the inputs right. And I've said this publicly uh, and even had, of course, a PowerPoint slide since General Walters communicated me the creative PowerPoint uh, that showed the different pieces. We didn't even get the inputs right until late 2010. That is nine years from the date that we invaded uh, Afghanistan, toppled the Taliban, and, and again, took over control by the Geneva Convention. An occupying force is responsible for uh, everything that goes on. And then we only had the inputs right for about six months before we began the drawdowns. Uh, now, yes, it did coincide that I was the commander in Afghanistan when we got the inputs right, that I was the commander over the commander in Afghanistan, U.S. Central Command, during the decision-making process in 2009 by the Obama administration that led to getting the inputs right. By inputs, just so the audience understands what I'm talking about here, this is roughly the right amount of resources. U.S. troops, coalition troops, diplomats, spies, development workers, a rule of law, you name it, all of the different elements that we needed. We almost got it right. We didn't really get to what General McChrystal rightly had asked for, what I strongly supported, and it's been determined as well. But it was close enough. Uh, and so we had that resourcing right. We finally had the organizational architecture right. We didn't even get that right again uh, until actually during my time. It was set in movement by General McChrystal, the commander. Uh, I replaced in the summer of 2010, but again, it wasn't achieved until a few months into my, my time. And, and I, I can sketch that out. That sounds very sort of arcane or perhaps not all that important. It's actually hugely important because it involves authorities of command 
types of operational control, what you can and cannot do with forces, who they actually work for. Keep in mind that I was dual as both well the commander of the NATO International Security Assistance Force, reporting to a NATO chain of command, and also the commander of U.S. forces Afghanistan, uh, elements of which included the Joint Special Operations Command and, and, of course, our special mission units that were doing the targeted operations and, of course, included the operation during my final months to condemn Osama bin Laden to justice. That was a U.S. only, and there were a number of other capabilities uh, in that regard as well. We had to get all of this mesh together, and we didn't again until 2010. We didn't even have the right strategy, the right approach, in part because we had the resources. Uh, the idea of a comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign, again, put in place in large measure by General McChrystal, but then we added during my time the reintegration effort, which I worked together with Ambassador Holbrook and Afghan authorities, the Afghan local police uh, program, which sought to have special forces teams of local communities overseeing local forces. Again, we had a lot of local initiatives. This was not all cobbled down. Uh, and strong central government. There was a lot of local cook program for the rule of law and, and so forth. So uh, again, many other elements, the right preparation of our commanders and forces, the right leaders uh, in place, and then the right coalition structures. All of this, we only got right nine years and we had lost all of that time. We had slaughtered all of it. We could never get time back. Uh, and we, we didn't capitalize on opportunities that we had early on. Beyond that, in general, we then failed, needless to say, to maintain a kind of consistent approach with a long-term view and above all with strategic patience. My longtime diplomatic partner, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, wrote a beautiful piece for the New York Times in which he attributed uh, essentially the failure in Afghanistan to lacking strategic patience. Uh, to repeatedly telling the enemy and everyone else that we wanted to draw down and leave, uh, thereby undermining the foundation from which we were trying to negotiate an agreement. I mean, why would the enemy give you anything if you actually already intend to leave and they know it? And of course, that led to what has to be among the most disastrous diplomatic agreements that the United States has ever signed, the one that was achieved last year under the previous U.S. administration, uh, which included forcing the, the Afghan government, which was not allowed to be at the table and negotiated throughout its own country, as the U.S. negotiated this agreement with the Taliban, forced them to release over 5,000 Taliban detainees and others who reinforced the Taliban and helped them in the offensive that was conducted this year, uh, and for which we basically got nothing except the Taliban agreeing that we would leave in the spring and that they wouldn't attack us in the meantime, something that was very difficult to do because we we're no longer on the front lines. Uh, so, a number of others that I should have just missed very quickly. We rotated commanders too quickly at various times. Towards the end, we started keeping commanders there for six, two and a half years. Uh, that was very important, but most of us rotated through for a year or so at a time. Uh, the use of enhanced interrogation techniques by our intelligence agency, uh, I felt, was both illegal and immoral and also didn't work. So, even if you believe that perhaps you should ignore the Geneva Convention uh, on treatment of detainees. The fact is you actually don't get the information you want through those measures. You do that by becoming the detainee's best friend. And, and again, I have some experience in this regard, having overseen been responsible for the largest number of detainees ever in recent American military history. We saw 27,000 of them in Iraq when I commanded the service there, and then several thousand in 
um, a number of other uh, actions that we should have thought more clearly. There was an over-reliance on drones uh, in, in Western Pakistan in 2009-2011, and I think something has gone off mute. If um, there were considerable civilian casualties, and it calls into question whether some of them might have created more bad guys than they took off the street uh, by their conduct. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the battle of the Afghan National Security Forces to overly sophisticated U.S.-made helicopters. I was the commander. We still were insisting on the provision of essentially Soviet-slash-Russian systems, the old M-7s, H's, and all the rest of this, which they could maintain much more analog than the kinds of very sophisticated glass cockpit digital systems uh, that we sent them uh, over time. But that meant that they had to have 18,000 contractors to maintain that most important element of their military capability. Because keep in mind that as counterinsurgents, and you know, some of my old comrades have, I think quite mistakenly said, we should have made them more like the insurgents, maybe lightly armed, you know, not so maintenance heavy. Well, we have a different job as a counterinsurgent. You have to protect population centers and critical infrastructure. You're not just doing raids at night when you want to and then going back to the valley and hanging out with, with your fellow Taliban comrades. You are actually, you have to protect stuff. And therefore, the idea was to have about 100,000 soldiers all around the country protecting key population centers. And then when they're hit, you respond with this uh, air mobility that is provided because of the limited ground infrastructure by the American helicopters and the American close air support, both helicopters uh, and uh, also uh, planes. So again, uh, that was, I think, uh, a mistake and it turned out to be the Achilles heel of the Afghan security forces because when the co contractors were withdrawn in the wake of the withdrawal of the US forces, the coalition forces, it meant that the Afghans could no longer maintain the ability to ferry their special operations forces out to respond uh, in uh, reacting to the Taliban offensive, which was quite skillful, simultaneous around the country, presented many challenges to the Afghan forces. And as I predicted, actually, publicly, several months prior to the collapse, did end up with a psychological collapse of Afghan forces when they realized that no one was coming to the rescue with close air support, with the special operations forces reinforcements, even with emergency resupply of ammunition, water, and so forth, much less preparing them out of that. And I think not surprising, therefore, uh, that you would see that kind of, uh, of, of collapse. Uh, it was actually quite predictable, which then calls into question, of course, the way that we want to work about the withdrawal, essentially withdrawing our soldiers um, before we withdrew the diplomats, the American citizens, the green card holders, and the special immigrant visa applicants, uh, individuals who had spent at least two years on the ground with our soldiers uh, as battlefield. And again, I'd, I'd ask that everyone, everyone please mute your microphone or else perhaps Alex, the, your IT people could mute everybody else except for the two of us. Um, General, I do apologize to jump in. in. Uh, there is a little bit of uh, fading and echo from your side. If you can change microphone uh, or uh, if you can just speak more near to the microphone, uh, because I don't know if it's the connection of just some fading. Uh, all the other people are muted. Okay, let me try that quickly. 
Can you still hear me now, Alex? Even better. Perfect. Okay. So, so those are again just some of the uh, the elements that we didn't get right, uh, if you will. Uh, and obviously, the ultimate evacuation of U.S. citizens, green card holders, SIVs, while extraordinary in logistical terms, way over 120,000 or whatever it was. Again, not just all U.S. aircraft, but uh, certainly the bulk of that. Uh, very, very impressive, but nonetheless quite a chaotic scene uh, at the airport and one that ultimately left behind, frankly, uh, tens of thousands of special immigrant visa applicants uh, and also, of course, uh, their family members and many tens of thousands of others whose lives are in jeopardy because of their service in some way uh, for the U.S. or coalition cause, uh, but without meeting, again, the requirements for getting a special immigrant visa. Now, let me, though, say there were a lot of elements that we got right. Uh, the, the use of air power during the invasion, the skillful use of special operations forces, CIA officers, Northern Alliance forces, and so forth to oust the Taliban and eliminate the Al-Qaeda sanctuary. Again, yes, Osama bin Laden got away, as did many of the Al-Qaeda fighters, but again, it was a very, very uh, impressive uh, effort. Uh, the addition of forces in late 2008 by President Bush and then the additional uh, forces in early 2009 by President Obama, the policy review by the Obama administration fall of 2009, and the decision to add that final 30,000 additional forces, and then eventually getting the inputs right in late 2010, the overarching strategy, the organizational architecture, the preparation of forces for deployment, nearly the right level of resources across uh, the board, generally the right uh, uh, leaders. Um, and all of that, uh, again, finally was in place. And the accomplishments, frankly, uh, over the subsequent, say, two years from the summer of 2010, summer of 2012, at least, halting the Taliban momentum, which was our mission when I took command, rolling it back in key provinces, accelerating the Afghan security force development, uh, establishing a transition process and then actually beginning the transition of security and other tasks to the Afghan security forces and select institutions by late spring 2011, the reintegration program, the efforts at reconciliation, the Afghan local police program, the U.S.-Afghan anti-corruption program, the raid that brought Osama bin Laden to justice and a number of other Haqqani leaders and, and, and so forth, um, and general recognition at various key moments by the Obama and Trump administrations that full withdrawal would unhinge the situation, of course, until the Trump administration did agree to what I described again as a uh, pretty disastrous agreement with the Taliban in 2020, committing the US to leaving in the spring uh, of 2021. Um, and then the development of a military approach that could have been the foundation for a sustained, sustainable commitment, which is what I felt we needed, and sustainability being measured in the expenditure of blood and treasure, uh, and sustained one that just continues, that actually acknowledges, yes, we cannot win in Afghanistan because the enemy headquarters are beyond our reach on Pakistani soil. But you know what? It's not all bad to just manage a problem, even one that is not winnable, um, and just continue to do it for a period of time uh, while you have a sustainable uh, commitment. Again, that is not costing too much. And my sense was that 3,500 troops, a lot of drones, a lot of intelligence support, a lot of precision close air support, 
uh, along with support for critical maintenance tasks, especially of the Afghan National Security for Air Force, was something that was sustainable. And it was frankly something that I advised uh, at the time. But in any event, that's sorry for that fairly long list. That'll be certainly the longest answer to any of the questions that you have. But it is one, as you can see, that I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about as a former commander of the theater, overarching greater Middle East as the commander on the ground in Afghanistan, as the director of the CIA, and frankly, even in my post-government life, uh, continuing to look at these and being called on from time to time by administrations and by members of Congress to offer my thoughts on it. No, thank you very much uh, for uh, the very detailed picture. And I'm sure that already with this answer, you answered several of the questions that are already flooding in in the chat box. Uh, looking at what next, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, holding the Taliban was mission critical and lack of strategic patience was one of the issues. But in this respect, uh, if we look uh, at uh, the broader picture of extremists from Sahel to the Philippines, uh, are this group going to be encouraged by the Taliban success uh, to launch global attacks uh, or they will focus more on local operation? Well, it will vary from group to group. Um, and, and I should note with respect to the current US administration and the coalition uh, against the Islamic State and other extremist groups around the world, everywhere else in the world, we are doing what I have essentially described as a sustained, sustainable commitment. Uh, and so by and large, we are keeping an eye and pressure as necessary on these different groups, even in cases where the approach is not the kind of sufficient approach to actually uh, eliminate the, the reasons for uh, the attraction of extremism in various countries and populations, but at least keeping pressure on them so that we periodically disrupt and degrade their capabilities to prevent them from carrying out the kind of wider global attacks. Um, certainly extremist groups have taken heart from the fact that the Taliban took down the United States and the coalition and the Afghan government uh, with which they disagreed, uh, which was, was uh, obviously uh, implementing a constitution that the Afghan Taliban do not accept. I mean, they're trying to take the country back, it appears, at least right now, to sort of a seventh century interpretation, very ultra-conservative interpretation uh, of Islam, um, and one that is essentially bringing about the economic collapse of the country, uh, and one that will produce a true humanitarian catastrophe tragically uh, in Afghanistan. And also the Taliban are learning already that it is much easier to be insurgents and to hang out in the valleys and or the hills and then attack periodically, or, you know, take down the regime uh, than it is to actually be the government itself uh, and actually have to be a counterinsurgent, which is much more problematic uh, and much more challenging. And they do not have the capacity. They don't have the intelligence. They don't have the air mobility, they don't have all of these different capabilities that we were able to bring to bear uh, together with the Afghan forces and, and in support of them. Um, and generally, uh, again, dealing with the, the Taliban, again, noting, yes, the Afghan government was far less than perfect. Yes, it was maddening. Yes, it was frustrating. Yes, there was corruption. Uh, yes, there was ineptitude. Uh, again, you name it, um, uh, political nepotism. But Again, was that not better uh, than what has replaced them? And it seems to me that 
the number of, you know, the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Afghans who are voting with their feet or trying to vote with their feet to get out of the country uh, is a reflection of how they feel about the Taliban relative uh, to the, the previous government of President Ashraf Ghani. But certainly, again, extremists have taken heart. They have celebrated. You have seen formal congratulations uh, given uh, to the, the Taliban. Uh, and certainly, the kinds of inadequately governed spaces that are emerging in Afghanistan will provide opportunities for the Islamic State, which has had its ranks swollen uh, by the release of detainees from all the prisons that the Taliban uh, broke detainees out of en route to Kabul. Uh, so you have a much more substantial Islamic State threat there. I don't think it is one beyond Afghanistan for the time being, but over time it is going to be uh, a very challenging uh, uh, threat. Uh, and we do have to keep a very close eye on it, and that will be exceedingly difficult without a single base, at least right now, uh, for an air base uh, for our assets in the Central or South Asian uh, states. Uh, certainly there's a possibility of that. But even then, it's going to be a long commute to the fight. Right now, flying from either Qatar or the UAE with a drone consumes about 60% of the flight time uh, of a Reaper just getting to and from uh, Afghanistan, rather than maintaining that unblinking eye that has always been so important to our aspects. But the key really is, and again, the lesson of the past 20 years of war, noting that it has to be applied in a global context that is very, very, very different with the shift completely to your part of the world, to an era of renewed great power rivalries, to the Indo-Pacific, all of that very appropriate. But if you think about the United States uniquely and its coalition partners, um, it is the guy in the circus who gets a plate on a stick and has to get other plates on sticks. The biggest plate on that stick, probably bigger than all the others, is the one that represents uh, the relationship with China. But there are many other smaller plates and all of these little extremist groups, the metastasized uh, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State and so forth around the world, whether in, again, Iraq or Syria or uh, the Horn of Africa, North Africa, Northwest Africa, uh, Southeast Asia. Again, there are numerous groups around the world that hold the potential uh, for very dangerous extremist attacks. And we have to, together with host nation partners and in support of them, advising, assisting, and enabling them rather than doing it ourselves, which we're now uniquely capable of doing because of this armada of drones in particular uh, that we now have, which was not available during my time, say, as a commander in Iraq or Afghanistan, that has changed what we're able to do, but we have to use that to keep an eye on all these different groups and all the keep all these other little plates spinning, even as we shift the main effort, the focus, the real uh, in, in, intense uh, effort again to the Indo-Pacific. We can do that. That is very, very doable. Uh, I think the administration is on the right track in that regard. Afghanistan is an outlier in that regard and it'll be challenging to keep an eye on there, but I don't see uh, regional, much less global attacks from there in the near term, although we have to keep an eye on that uh, for the far term. And of course, again, this humanitarian disaster that is shaping up in Afghanistan is going to seize the world's attention as well, just because if nothing else, the sheer number of refugees that that will, that will push into neighboring countries, Pakistan foremost among them and a country that can least really uh, afford to have all of them, uh, but then more broadly as well, as we saw, for example, with the 
geopolitical Chernobyl, the meltdown of Syria uh, during the, the tough days of its civil war, which obviously continues. General, I was planning to ask you a question on Indo-Pacific, but as you mentioned several times, drones, uh, also we received uh, an enormous amount of questions on drones. So I will start with that, and I will try to collate uh, some of the questions from Rocco, Jinwei, and Joy. Uh, does General Petraeus feel that drone strike has degraded the position of the U.S. in the battle for heart and mind within the state? And in this respect, uh, I can add that uh, there was an old British guy in the desert that was used to say that fighting insurgent uh, is Messian's law. It's like eating soup with a knife. So are the drones uh, going to make eating soup with a knife uh, easier? Uh, it depends. Uh, and of course, as a former professor of economics, uh, you know, that's how you often should start answering a question that requires a bit of nuance. Um, let me describe it by um, reminding the audience of a sign that was always on the wall of my command post when I was all the way from as a two-star commander in Iraq during the invasion as commander of the great 101st Airborne Division and then up into Mosul. Uh, three-star commander, four-star commander there, central command in Afghanistan. And this sign stared me in the face as I was looking at the displays on the wall uh, in the command post. And that sign asked, will this operation take more bad guys off the street than it creates by its conduct? And that is the test that we applied to all operations, uh, including those that involved uh, drone strikes. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I think that there were times when we overused uh, drones where perhaps the answer, this is not actually mil necessarily uh, military uh, activity at all times, um, but there were times not under my command, candidly, uh, where I felt that again, uh, we needed to look very, very hard uh, at how we were using these. Um, and I think the record by and large holds that certainly, look, we made mistakes in my watch plenty of times. War is a very, very uh, messy endeavor, but we work very, very, very hard to protect the population that we were supposed to be securing. Uh, and again, if you are creating more bad guys than you take off the street by the conduct of an operation of any type, not just drones, this applies to use of close air support, use of mortars, artillery, small arms, uh, any operation should be subject to that question, to that test, uh, and scrutinized very carefully. And this is one of the reasons that we have lawyers, again, in our targeting uh, boards and so forth. Again, people think that this is some kind of bureaucracy or that we've given in to, uh, you know, embracing litigation or something like this or overly legalistic. That's just not so. We wanted to make sure that we had everyone engaged to ensure that we were going to do the right thing and that at all times you minimize uh, innocent civilian uh, uh, injuries and losses and collateral damage to infrastructure and critical uh, roads, bridges, you name it. So this is a crucial element uh, of how you employ all capabilities not just drones, uh, although drones obviously have been an area of focus because of the use of them in many cases where we are unable to go on the ground 
uh, in places, say, like the Horn of Africa or some other spots in, in, in Africa in particular, where we don't have forces on the ground, we can't undertake an operation uh, in that manner for a variety of different reasons, and therefore you must resort to a drone strike. Uh, and again, there are rules of engagement for this. They are very restrictive. They're very carefully applied. Uh, and I firmly support that approach to it to ensure, again, that you are passing the test that is posed by that question that was always on the wall of my command post. Thank you. As you mentioned before, uh, leaving Afghanistan uh, released several forces for the U.S. to focus more on the competition uh, on uh, Great Power River and especially in the Pacific. So please now allow me to move from Afghanistan to the region where we are now here in Singapore, the Indo-Pacific. And basically, what does the militarization of the Indo-Pacific means for the future of US-China relations? Um, first of all, with respect, I'm not sure that the forces that were removed from Afghanistan in all cases are going to be immediately useful somewhere else, candidly. I mean, if you look at what kind of theater the Indo-Pacific is, you obviously see that it is a predominantly maritime, air, space, cyberspace, et cetera, theater, uh, not necessarily a ground theater. Not saying that ground forces are not very, very important there, uh, and that ground uh, capabilities, uh, in, especially in host nation partners and so forth, are not uh, central to some of the issues. But by and large, by contrast with a landlocked country like Afghanistan, uh, where we had largely advise and assist troops at the end, drones, close air support, et cetera, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance platforms, some of those certainly being freed up, but some of those are actually going to have to stay and continue to perform the tasks that they were doing before, uh, using more of their flight time, as I mentioned, to get from much more remote bases uh, to and from Afghanistan than was the case when we had bases all over Afghanistan. And noting, by the way, that our withdrawal from those bases in Afghanistan is not just important to the efforts in Afghanistan, but also to the regional counterterrorism campaign, which is now much more difficult uh, as well. Um, but certainly uh, the militarization, as you say, of the Indo-Pacific, um, which is, look, this has been decades in the making, um, but has much more focus and scrutiny and attention and resources now, um, you know, what does this mean? Well, it, I think it means an increasingly complex situation. Uh, I think it holds the prospects, uh, which we must guard against very, very carefully uh, for miscalculation or misperceptions or mistakes and so forth. We have to work very, very carefully to ensure that we have lines of communication uh, uh, with China in this regard, as an example, with our allies and partners. Uh, again, uh, there are going to be huge initiatives uh, in this area uh, that is to be expected. We want very much to ensure that deterrence uh, is, uh, is strong. And of course, keep in mind that deterrence is a function of two elements. It is the function of an adversary, a potential adversary's assessment of your capabilities on the one hand uh, and your willingness to employ those capabilities uh, on the other. And I might note that given that the withdrawal from Afghanistan has allowed some countries to say, for example, uh, you know, see, we told you America was a partner, it was a country in decline. See, America is an unreliable partner. We have to take extra uh, care actually to demonstrate 
that that is not true. And I do not believe it's true. I don't think America's best days are behind us. I think they are ahead of us. I think that the system that we have as noisy and difficult and challenging and all the rest of that as it is, is going to show that the economy is going to come back booming, we'll get COVID under control, get investment in critical infrastructure that will improve productivity and boost GDP, all the rest of this. And that together with our allies and partners around the world, as this administration has been pursuing, we will establish a coherent, comprehensive whole of governments with an S on the end, so all of our partners and allies together, approach to the most important relationship in the world, which is that with China, uh, seeking to ensure that we are able to collaborate, to cooperate, to work together on issues of common concern, whether it's uh, climate, again, the pandemic, the global economy, uh, you name it, uh, and that in other areas, there is fair competition, as there should be. Uh, and and avoiding, obviously, at all costs, uh, potential conflict by ensuring that deterrence is as robust as it can possibly made, be made to be. I'm afraid you're on mute, Al. You, you, you mentioned deterrence, uh, and there are several questions uh, uh, that uh, uh, underline what you just said before, how the U.S. can be trusted. I have a question from Saman Bokhari that say how the U.S. can be trusted today as a long-term partner. The record is not very good in that respect uh, in relation, for example, with Pakistan. But let me use this uh, uh, question, moving it uh, to the AUKUS trilateral security pact between Australia, United Kingdom and the United States. Uh, there is a question from Jules, and I condense it with several other questions. Uh, the AUKUS showcased in some way the relevance of the European Union. It is also the case for Asian? Not at all, I don't think. Uh, look, you can certainly go back and ask, should the US not have ensured that you know, our ally of many, many decades, uh, Australia, a country which has been with us in every single war, and I, I'm the only American privileged, I believe, to have commanded Australian forces in two different wars and in a number of other endeavors. And then, of course, to have that special relationship as the intelligence the chief of the CIA and the Five Eyes relationship that includes the US, UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, so again, that's a very, very strong uh, relationship. And, and But perhaps one can ask, you know, should we have not ensured that the dialogue between Australia and France um, was more robust than it apparently was? My understanding is there were reassurances given prior to the announcement, but clearly uh, that was not the perception in Paris. And again, let's recognize that the, the longest standing alliance in the world for the United States or relationship in the world is that with France. Had France not joined uh, the effort of the American colonialists in the Revolutionary War and blockaded the uh, Yorktown Harbor and enabled and fought with us uh, the siege of Cornwallis's forces uh, at Yorktown, uh, in 1781, I think it was, uh, we would not have ended the war there. Of course, it wasn't really ended until the Treaty of Paris, of course, it, indicating again, the importance of that ally. So yes, there is some work to be done diplomatically. Uh, clearly, the President, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense have gone to great lengths uh, in recent weeks to uh, mollify and to reassure uh, our, our French partners. I see by no means is the EU irrelevant, uh, not in any case. I've actually been in Europe uh, 
In two recent weeks, I was in Warsaw for the Warsaw Security Forum on whose board I sit uh, three weeks ago. I was in Italy last week. Uh, and certainly there is concern about the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. Many of those allies wanted to stay. Uh, there is a sense that perhaps the consultation on that was not all that, it, at least from the European perspective, that it might have been. But at the end of the day, I don't think there's a better partner than the United States. I don't think there's a better system than what it is that we all share these values, these ideals, these principles, these freedoms that we embrace. Uh, is it messy at times? Are there occasionally uh, decisions that, again, uh, one can ask you know, whether that was or was not? But as I've laid out, uh, yes, Afghanistan, look, I do believe we should have gone in a different direction. Uh, but on the other hand, everywhere else around the world, we are doing roughly uh, what I think is, is the appropriate approach. Um, and again, the effort in the Indo-Pacific uh, very, very clearly is the focus of this administration as it was for the previous administration, which is the one that really truly changed the conversation uh, in a significant way. And, and I think other countries should understand that there is bipartisan support and that is not in many, in all areas in the United States for those who follow the news closely. There is bipartisan support, uh, not just in Washington, but in the United States writ large for the kind of approach uh, that we are taking in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and the resources are going to be very, very considerable once again uh, in the defense budget uh, that is eventually passed uh, for the budget year that, yes, did begin on the first of this month already. Oh, I would say that you mentioned that there is no better partner than the U.S. Uh, and I take you on that with the following question by Anthony Teo. After winning the Second World War, U.S.-Japan took three generations to solidify. After the Vietnam War, it took two generations to find a strategic combination in South China Sea. In Afghanistan, how many generations will be needed to find a strategic agreement with respect to Central Asia and South Asia? It's a wonderful question, Anthony. Thank you. Um, is this is he from Italy? By any, is that the individual that I know from Italy by any chance? It's uh, in our uh, member of our board at MEI. Anthony. Okay. Um, you know, my view in Afghanistan was that I don't know how many generations or decade it's going to take. If you look at our experience in Korea, I mean, we see Korea now as this incredibly prosperous, innovative, uh, technology-driven, well-educated, thriving, prosperous, vibrant uh, democracy with impressive free market uh, capitalism and so forth. But let's remember, how many decades did it take? Um, how many decades were there these very uh, you know, military strongmen uh, ruling uh, Korea. How many decades were was it, uh, if you will, in a less than perfect uh, a government? And yet we hung in there. Yes, it was not an active combat zone the way that Afghanistan was for sure. And yes, frankly, uh, Afghanistan vastly more frustrating in a variety of ways. And of course, again, we did contribute to some of this. We probably did go overboard with some of our uh, programs at different times beyond just the provision of, of again, uh, overly sophisticated uh, uh, helicopters and, and other aircraft. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, again, 
I would have contended, and I did contend at the time, that that imperfect government was preferable to what is now ruling Afghanistan uh, and what is going to make life so exceedingly difficult uh, for the people of Afghanistan. So, um, but who could have, there is no timeline. And, and my argument always was that you should do withdrawals and force reductions and so forth on the basis of conditions on the ground, not on the basis of, say, political conditions uh, in Washington, DC. Noting that obviously, look, with respect, you know, people who actually have to get elected uh, really do have to take into account political conditions. And I did offer actually to both of the presidents for whom I was privileged to serve as a four-star commander in, in combat, President Bush in Iraq and President Obama in Afghanistan, uh, up front, I said, look, when you ask me about the drawdown decision, you're going to get my best professional military advice based on the facts on the ground and the missions you have given us informed by an awareness of all the other issues with which you have to deal. And yes, you do have to take into account American politics, congressional politics, alliance politics, uh, budget deficits, strain on the force, the opportunity cost of forces in Iraq or in Afghanistan relative to where else in the world they could be. But at the end of the day, what you're gonna get from me is my best professional military advice based on Iraq and Afghanistan. And to some degree, I'm still uh, providing uh, answers from that perspective, if you will, rather than from that of someone who actually has to get electoral votes. And I'm still looking uh, at picking your brain in this respect uh, as a general and not as a politician with a question uh, from Prejit, I hope I pronounced the name correct. What is your assessment of Russia and China interest in Afghanistan? Are the interests more convergent or divergent? And what are the implications for the US? I think there are uh, some issues uh, that are convergent and probably even convergent with ours, by the way. I don't think any one of our three countries wants to see the illegal narcotics trade expanded in Afghanistan. That's a trade that largely was controlled by the Taliban uh, over the years. A lot of the revenue went to individuals that were either related to or, again, close to or part of the Taliban. The Taliban say that they will uh, eliminate that as part of their reforms, I suspect that's going to prove very, very difficult as all of their other sources of revenue have dried up and their assets have been frozen around the world and their access to IMF and World Bank funds uh, have been uh, put on hold as well. Uh, I think all three of our countries do not want to see Afghanistan become a hotbed of uh, Islamist extremism, uh, especially that which would expand beyond the borders uh, of Afghanistan, not just into South Asia and Central Asia, but perhaps all the way into uh, other countries, uh, including uh, Europe, including the United States, including uh, Russia and including China. I think China in particular is very sensitive to the threat of Islamist extremism. Um, I think that Russia has perhaps a little bit more um, uh, real focus on the prosperity of the Central Asian states, which of course used to be Soviet republics, but, but uh, China is uh, also very active in the Central Asian states, as is the United States. Again, I spent a fair amount of time there as the commander of US Central Command, um, especially with Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, because, and then also Kyrgyzstan, where we had an air base uh, and transit center, but we had to open up a northern line uh, of uh, operations, uh, for logistical supplies and so forth. And we successfully did that, believe it or not, from Afghanistan, 
through, I think it was Tremez, uh, into Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and into Russia, and then uh, out to uh, a port uh, in, in the Baltic or uh, in uh, Europe. So uh, again, there's actually quite a bit of common interest here. And I don't think any of our three countries wants to see the Afghan people uh, endure what I fear they will endure this winter, uh, which is going to be a period of enormous privation. It's, it's possible, literally, the electricity, the lights could go out in Kabul. A lot of that electricity comes from the Central Asian states, but if Afghanistan is not paying the bill, uh, it's hard for me to imagine they're going to continue it forever. And the refined fuel products that come from Iran, likewise, uh, which are used to generate electricity locally as well, uh, it's hard for me to imagine that they'll just continue to provide that uh, without some uh, revenue in return. Um, so a lot of common interest there, actually, as you think your way through that. Um, certainly, uh, there have been questions about whether China would step in to fill the, quote, vacuum left by the departure of the U.S. and the coalition. Um, I'm not sure I see that. Their model is not one that gives very huge amounts of money the way that we provided, you know, 75 percent of the Afghan budget. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, which does provide typically loans to countries uh, for the construction of critical infrastructure and various projects. Again, I don't see that uh, prospect of that given the security challenges that Afghanistan already faces with the Islamic State bombing Shia mosques, with resistance forces fighting against Taliban in various places, uh, with the possibility of Al-Qaeda uh, reestablishing a sanctuary, and even actually the the internal uh, differences between the Afghan Taliban led by Mullah Baradar, who's actually withdrawn to Kandahar, uh, and the Haqqani network, the Haqqani Taliban, which is sometimes referred to, uh, led by Khalil Haqqani uh, in, um, uh, in Kabul. Uh, so all of this, the prospects, again, are not particularly propitious in my mind uh, for China rushing back in. Keep in mind that they had a copper mine uh, in Logar province, just south of Kabul. They put a num billions of dollars into this, developing it, and then they withdrew from it after they were hit by rockets and mortars uh, several times, I think during, during the period that I was privileged to be the commander of the International Security Assistance Force. So uh, again, they'll examine the possibilities. Uh, they are keenly aware, as all of us are aware, of the extraordinary mineral wealth in the ground in Afghanistan, some $2 trillion we assessed uh, when we did an ass uh, that a survey in my time as the commander. But the problem is it may be there and you may be able to shovel lithium out of the ground um, uh, without any other sophisticated extraction uh, out in Herat province. But how do you then get it to where it needs to go? Where is all of the physical and human capital and infrastructure that's needed to capitalize on to exploit uh, those opportunities in Afghanistan? And the answer is it's not there. Uh, and especially if the security situation is not dramatically improved, uh, I'm afraid you're not going to see it. I would love to see, for example, the Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India pipeline for natural gas be built the way it was envisioned again during my time as the commander and, and during which it was again sketched out and surveyed. Uh, but the security situation just has not allowed that. Uh, and it's not clear to me, frankly, that the Taliban are going to be able to maintain the security situation that would give confidence to investors and others uh, to do that kind of very substantial work. 
Yes, as you mentioned, I recall that Mesainak, the copper mine under MCC from China, was a quite difficult endeavor, even during the protection, the security umbrella granted yes. by the United yeah. States. Yeah. And Papi looks more. I mean, we wanted like them to do that, brain. by the way. We wanted them to succeed in this. This would be a success for, uh, for Afghanistan. Uh, this, again, was in 2010, 2011. We were doing these projects ourselves. We actually got the oil industry going again. Uh, in the northern part of the country. And yes, maybe it was, I don't know, 40,000, 50,000 barrels a day, but do the math, that gradually accumulates and all of a sudden you can start to reinvest and you can turn what looks like a Rube Goldberg scheme into something that is somewhat modern. Um, we had all of those hopes and aspirations and initiatives uh, when we had that large force and that security posture, uh, but over time it just proved uh, not possible to sustain it, sadly. And now I think the time is almost running out and I know that you have a meeting after us. So please allow me just the last question. And I just put other questions together from Benjamin, Junjie, and other from the audience that they look at what is the CIA or the US government in general doing to combat disinformation, especially from foreign agents? Well, this is much, much bigger than the CIA. It's much bigger than the intelligence community. It's much bigger than even the US government. Uh, this is a problem that all democracies face. I believe really all countries face. Uh, and it is one in which we must partner with the internet service providers, uh, with the social media platform uh, owners and operators uh, and, and so forth. And it has to be done more effectively. I don't think anyone, even Facebook, is asking for regulation. I mean, they have ads every single day in politico.com noting how they want this kind of regulation. They want someone to tell them what is permissible and what is not. Uh, they haven't gotten it. And so they've essentially set up their own little court, uh, their own little justice or determination. Uh, adjudication is probably the better word uh, process with very prominent uh, Americans and international, including a former Deputy Prime Minister of the UK. Um, and yet it is still not, not satisfactory. Now, the beauty of a democracy is, of, of course, that all of this is exposed and it is uh, commented on and argued about and, you know, obviously quite passionately from different sides. Uh, and again, my hope is that over time, uh, you will see uh, a US administration, this one, one would hope for the near term and this Congress uh, begin to address these kinds of issues. Uh, some European uh, governments and the EU, EU writ large have done this, I think, in a very impressive manner. And there are a lot of lessons that we can take uh, from that, from Germany in particular, in, in some of these areas. Uh, but that's what we have to do going forward, because this is a, an enormous threat uh, to our social cohesion, uh, to the health of our populations, uh, and to the health of our democracy. And and with that, Alex, you are right, I do have to drop. Um, I'm actually going to do a session with the, uh, the UK Parliament on Afghanistan uh, right after this. And let me just say again, how appreciative I am of the opportunity to do this with the Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore. And I thank you for the invitation and I thank you for orchestrating this uh, so nicely. Joanne Petraeus, I'm the one who have to thank you and to thanks all our audience for being with us on Facebook and directly on Zoom today. And good night from Singapore. Thank you. Grazie mille. <laughs>